This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. What a beautiful day it is here, and I am just so grateful to sit in this seat and talk to these incredible guests. I was just talking to today's guest about how lucky I feel. And of course, I feel fortunate to have a global audience that tunes in. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Got some beautiful emails this week. I write everyone back. People say, how can you do that? I said, oh, if they, you take the time for me, I'm going to take the time for you, especially if you're listening to our show. Today's guest has written a really good book. It's actually called Recovery Allies. I have read it. It is strong. I've given it away to friends in recovery and also people who are supporting those people. The actual title is Recovery Allies, How to Support Addiction Recovery and Build Recovery-Friendly Communities. It's really, really good, I think, for anyone who has someone in their life who might be struggling. It is an honor to finally welcome to the show, Miss Allison Jones-Webb. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Allison, how did you get so deeply into the world of addiction and, of course, recovery? Well, uh, it was a slightly long road, and I'll just take a little bit of time to explain that. Um, you know, I come from a family like many, many, many Americans uh, that with there are a lot of addiction in my family. And I have not been personally impacted in my nuclear family, but my extended family really up and down the generations is just full of uh, problematic drinking, problematic drug use, and um, and mental health issues. And so growing up uh, in my family, um, that was actually never talked about. And so uh, there was always something for me lurking in the family that I'd never really knew or understood. Um, but I knew that there was something there, something negative. And you know, fast forward a few years, I uh, started a career in public health. And um, as I was working in public health, we uh, we sort of hit the opioid overdose crisis. Uh, I was in the state of Maine at the time. Uh, that happened. Uh, it hit us very hard. And I was asked to start uh, bring my public health work to that topic. And as I started doing work in the field, uh, including prevention work and harm reduction work, overdose prevention uh, and recovery support services, I started to understand very deeply what had been going on in my own extended family. Um, and so I was able to read a lot about um, the roots of addiction, uh, the, the pathways to recovery, uh, the meaning of recovery in people's lives, um, I was able to talk with a lot of people in recovery as part of my work who almost all of them became my friends. Uh, and I eventually felt called to, uh, to, to do recovery advocacy. And part of that advocacy is writing this book. Um, what I found in that work in public health was that uh, Part of what we did in, in Maine, and I think this happened in a lot of other communities, we would go around the state and talk about addiction and people in recovery would tell their stories. And um, community members would just invariably come up to me after these presentations and and be grateful for, for the information and be touched by the stories and want to know what they could do to help. 
And so uh, this book I'm hoping uh, answers some of their questions anyway about what people of all walks of life can do to support recovery. And so, so it's a book that really does not focus very much on addiction. There's a lot of education about what addiction is, uh, but the stories are stories of hope um, and uh, stories of recovery, people living full lives after addiction. And it really is generational. Like I never knew my mother's father, but he was a savage alcoholic, brutal, beat his kids. And my mother suffered the scars of it and it influenced the way she raised me and her relationship to the world. Of course, I didn't know it as a kid, it wasn't until later when I did my own inner work and had the perspective of time that I could look back and go, oh, wow, mom suffered some serious trauma and I could see where it showed up in her life. And she didn't ever go in any kind of Al-Anon or recovery and all that. She just powered through it because that was that generation. But it really, it's like a, a gene or a, a deficiency or a, or a disease that gets passed down. Yeah, I've had that experience, too, of just sort of understanding, uh, again, you know, once you kind of dig in a little deeper and you realize, wait, what was really going on in those families? You realize the the level of trauma that people experienced and never talked about. Um, and I do think part of the generational aspect is uh, our parents' generation and certainly our grandparents' generation never talked about anything. Um, and so... Uh, so, you know, sort of self-reflection, maybe there was self-reflection, but there was never a discussion of it. Um, and there is this genetic component. And I think that uh, one, of the, one of the services that we do our children and our children's children by talking about it when we do have addiction in our families is we let them know that this is a risk factor for you. You may not be able to use drugs and alcohol like other people can. You, you may be setting yourself up for some problematic uh, uh, chaotic use um, if you start using. And I've certainly delivered that message to my kids once I understood um, what, was, what was in my own, you know, basically genetic inheritance, uh, but you know, then there's, uh, there's the trauma that comes along with it that also is passed down in one way or another. You mentioned the opioid crisis. How bad was that for you when you were up in Maine? Well, how bad was and is it? Yeah, is it still? Yeah, good point. Yeah. Well, it continues, uh, I would say, pretty much unabated. And um, it's funny that you mentioned this now because I did a presentation a couple of days ago at a, a conference uh, where I you know, introduced myself as a person who'd been working in public health. Uh, and I had been working on opioid overdose prevention since about 2012, and we have failed. We have failed. There's just no other way to say it uh, because overdose deaths continue to rise. And there are a bunch of different reasons for that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the drug supply is, uh, is much more, uh, it's stronger now. It's contaminated with fentanyl and other drugs that make it very difficult for people to know what they're using when they do use. Um, and that has uh, just really is sort of like thrown gasoline on the fire. But, you know, people people use drugs uh, for a lot of different reasons. And when they find themselves at that stage of chaotic use, um, what what our job in the community is, is to support them and keep them safe uh, so that they don't so that an overdose or an overdose death doesn't occur. And we just haven't done a good job of that. We just haven't. This will sound like I'm looking for a laugh line, but shouldn't the Sacklers be in jail and every dollar they've ever earned taken and thrown into the recovery communities that they've destroyed? I don't know if you saw the 
the series Dope Sick or read the book it was based on, I came away from that, and I don't know how those people are not hanging from the yard arm. Yeah, I mean, so not a laugh line at all. You got 100% of my backing. I mean, they, uh, you know, are very savvy people with a lot of money who figured out how to move their uh, assets offshore uh, and then declare bankruptcy. So uh, sure, they're broke uh, in terms of what their assets were that were made available to the bankruptcy court. Um, But they're not they're not struggling financially. And uh, the funding that has been made available through the um, opioid settlement uh, is important. Um, but, you know, I really want your listeners to understand and hear this loud and clear. It is no way sufficient, no way sufficient to address the magnitude of the problem. And, the you know, the problem of, you know, children without parents, people who are incarcerated, um, individuals who, you know, if they are in recovery now have a long, long road to get their lives back together again in terms of employment and education and financial uh, stability. Uh, And so that, um, I think one of the lessons that we learned from the Purdue Pharma case lawsuit and their bankruptcy is that the courts are not a good place to solve this problem. It's, it's what we have, you know, it's, it, it's the avenue that we have, but it's not a good place to, um, to provide not only money, but um, thoughtful uh, funding for evidence-based programs that are going to last, that are going to endure beyond a shot in the arm funding from, from the drug companies. And I'll say, I'll say also that dope sick, uh, uh, series I did watch it's very moving and so so spot on in so many ways and if you're if your listeners haven't uh, seen it or if they don't have a connection to that aspect of addiction I would definitely encourage them to watch it I thought it was powerful because it really made it a human story and you could see the collateral damage of lives and we're trying to get the author on she's been so busy she's yes yes give me time but it's uh I mean, I feel like it's really something worth addressing because so many people think it was just them or their fault or they were weak and they were played. They were lied to. Doctors were lied to. And so many died. And what struck me was how that drug changes your brain where it's not just so easy to come back and be a clean, sober person. Your brain is damaged and changed. Right. And this is one of the things that, you know, we all... uh, who, who are learning about that really have a responsibility to educate people about because uh, the younger you are when you start, the greater those changes are uh, and the more, uh, you know, the greater impact they can have on your life. But yeah, I think this is the, the understanding that we've come to about addiction, which is, um, you know, you, maybe you choose your first two or three or four uh, opportunities to use drugs, but at some point, uh, your brain and the drug take that choice away. And, uh, you know, people who, people who have members of their family who are using her, who just throw up their hands, like what in the world can we do? Things are crazy. Uh, I met a woman the other day who counseled families like, yeah, you're, when you're talking with a person who's in active, active addiction, you're actually talking to their disease. You're actually talking to their diseased brain. And, um, and I think that's usually helpful for families anyway, who see, who see the people they love just do crazy things and, and destructive things that, uh, that you know in, a right, in their right minds they wouldn't be doing otherwise. 
This will sound like an overly simplistic question, but why is addiction so epidemic? Is it reflective of our broken and traumatic systems? I just feel like this is a hard place to be a human being, especially in America. I don't think corporate capitalism is almost cannibalistic. It pushes people towards the cliff and over it. It's not very supportive. It's profit-driven. I'm tying a lot of things together, but I just, I don't think it's natural to have this much pain and suffering. And then, of course, the human, the organism, the animal is going to reach for relief. What are your theories? That's a big question, but I'm always fascinated by that. So you're hitting on a lot of um, really key points in our growing understanding of addiction. And I'll say kind of our, our addiction epidemic. Um, it's really a little hard to know. So are, are our addiction rates higher than they used to be? We don't keep good data. We don't know. But certainly what we see in our families and our neighborhoods is the impact of addiction. It's much stronger than it has been in the past. And um, I think that uh, one reason, and I think research backs this up, uh, is that people are living in a lot of pain. And so pain, uh, some physical pain, which is one reason why the opioid epidemic uh, sort of had its roots, uh, the opioid overdose epidemic had its roots in Appalachia, uh, where uh, jobs were lost, income was lost, opportunities were lost, and people had been living for years doing physical labor, hard physical labor, uh, where they had been given painkillers. And so um, so kind of remove the remove the jobs, remove the opportunities, remove hope, uh, and keep the supply of opioids present. Uh, and you know you've got a prescription for disaster, and that's that's the the pain element. So that I was just talking about sort of that physical pain there. Um, and then you layer on top of that, you know, the alienation that people feel, and I think this comes in so many different forms. So, you know, one of the things that you're mentioning is uh, sort of post-industrial capitalism, where so many people have lost their jobs and have lost meaning, uh, which is what work provides so many of us, uh, and, and lost their meaning, and really, what else do they have? And, um, you know, drugs and alcohol are pretty good, at uh, making us feel better when we're feeling bad. And so either that's psychological pain or the shame of not being able to provide for your fam family the way you want to because the economy has kind of crashed around you. Um, and then, you know, there's, uh, there's psychological pain. You know, you think sometimes about uh, cyberbullying and some of the stuff that our young people are experiencing that just separate them from from their peers uh, in a way that creates a lot of pain. Uh, and in some cases, some of that stuff is pretty traumatic. Um, and again, it's like drugs and alcohol do a pretty good job of making us feel better. And, you know, there's uh, the, the flip side of that is, so the flip side of the pain is, well, if you had opportunities for genuine human connection, um, you might, that pain might, that might address a lot of your pain. And so in, in this post-industrialized society where we live, there's a lot of alienation people have from each other. And we've managed uh, with our cyber world to, to live without 
people in close proximity. We see people, but we don't, <laughs> we see them online, you know, but we don't live in close proximity to people. And so there's, there's this aspect of connection that is, is lost. And if you start putting these things together, you know, you have this piece of alienation, you have these various <clears throat> aspects of pain, and then you have like the no way of addressing your pain. Okay, maybe talk therapy, but uh, maybe your talk therapist is actually online now. You know, it's just, we've just we've just managed to um, to decrease again and again and again the opportunities for for connection, while we've managed to increase uh, the sources of pain. And I think. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of data that backs that up when you start talking with young people or you talk about people who are in early recovery, why'd you do this? And a lot of what we find uh, backs up those aspects of, I don't know, there wasn't anything else to do. Uh, you know, my dad beat me or, you know, sometimes uh, physical and emotional abuse in youth, uh, in, in childhood. Uh, so all of these uh creators of pain without anything or without much around us to, to soften it and ameliorate it. And then you add in super easy access to pharmaceutical drugs. My friend, Marian Williamson, who's been on the show a lot, she said this on the air so I could share it. A couple of years ago, she was feeling sad because two friends had died and was going for a physical. And he said, how are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm a little sad. You know, two friends died. And without saying anything else, he wrote a prescription for like, an antidepressant that's highly addictive and she said what's this he said you're sad she said of course i'm sad my close friends died also i'll flip that i was just visiting friends in another city and their son who's a brilliant young guy 17 every free minute he has he's on a video game hours after hours and i don't think that's natural i'm going to sound like the old guy we were outside 24 7 he had to threaten us to make us come inside He's on all these medications because he's alienated and isolated and he's depressed. And I'm, but so is the rest of the family. And then I discovered all these other people on antidepressants when I brought it up. Oh, me too. And I was shocked. It was like, well, what's the root cause? Maybe a little sunshine and fellowship. Go out and throw a ball around or find, get a dog, go to the dog park, interact. I just feel like it's an unnatural construct. And no wonder people are on everything. Well, we're, we're creating this, you know, and I put, I put myself in it too. We're all doing it. Um, I, I do love the fact that there's, there is research around getting kids outside and ourselves as well, getting kids outside for their own physical health. Uh, and there's research around animals, right? Dogs make you get outside and walk. People who have dogs walk more than people who don't have dogs. And it does sound old fashioned. And, um, you know, I can hear my kids cringing in the background, but, but there's some and research is showing us that. And um, I will say, you know, that one thing that I do notice um, in, that does give me hope is that um, in the generation of my children, among the in the recovery community, but beyond that as well, there is a lot of engagement that goes on and there is a raise, rising awareness that, wait a second, we've been fed drugs to solve our problems. And our experience is that it's not working. Let's, you know, as young people and young meaning anybody, you know, in their 20s or 30s, um, let's not do that. Let's try something else. And so I think we are seeing, um, you know, it's a different brand of counterculturalism, right? So 
counterculture for me was like the 60s and, uh, you know, freedom marches and that kind of thing, rock and roll. I think that counterculture these days really is breaking away from um, online life, finding ways to interact together, young people finding ways to interact together that don't involve um, electronics. And there is that, there is that, and that does give me hope. And I also see, you know, parents of very young children who refuse to let their kids have any electronics, like no access. So, you know, I think um, in addition to the to the uh, the grim side of things, there is there is hope. There is there's always hope. I do see hope for sure. Some tips and what you've learned on how to build a recovery community that's strong and diverse and will support us. Well, thank you for that question. That's that that could take us a couple of days to talk about. Um, so, uh, you know, in in every community, there are people uh, in recovery. That's true. There's 23 million Mer Americans in recovery. They're scattered across the United States. Some of them identify as people in recovery. Others don't. It's all good. Um, but but whatever whatever their situation is, we know that there are people in recovery in our communities. And so one, one thing that um, is, is our responsibility uh, is to learn about addiction and learn about recovery. And when we learn about it, we uh, start to destigmatize it. And so I um, like to start by telling people to look inside themselves uh, and look at their own experiences and attitudes. And you were mentioning, you know, it's kind of learned about your mom's life. Um, I have done some pretty serious sort of looking inside as well and realizing, well, when I grew up, you know, the word drunk was fine. Like, hey, is it just an old drunk? And it's like, yeah, that's not a word that we use anymore. Or if we do, it's so clearly derogatory. But if I either think it or if I don't, replace it with something in my own lexicon. That's, I'm, I'm sort of maintaining that, that chain of stigma. And so thinking about our own attitudes, uh, you know, if you see, um, you see news reports of young women who are using drugs and they're, uh, they've lost custody of their children and you think, oh, well, serves them right. It's like, hmm, let's think about that a little bit differently. Clearly this is a woman who is in pain. She just lost her children, you know, custody of her children. Uh, she's she's dealing with pain through drugs and alcohol. She needs help. She doesn't need scorn. So just thinking about our own attitudes, going deep. I mean, going really deep, and uh, starting there uh, does a lot towards uh, towards addressing stigma in the community. And I would tell your listeners that. Um, the main reason that people do not seek help when they realize they need it for their drug and alcohol problems, the main reason is because they're ashamed. And so that shame means that people get worse, they don't get better. And so their problem gets worse before it's, it gets better. So really by our own attitudes uh, and speaking up about our own attitudes, we, it's a, it may feel like a small step, but it's actually a very important step in, in uh, creating a, an environment that's friendly for people in recovery. And then there's all kinds of things that have more specifically to do with um, 
services uh, for people in recovery and not every community is going to be able to do this or not the or have the funds to do it but there are certain types of housing uh, recovery housing for people who are uh, perhaps just coming out of jail or prison and need a place to go and they're in recovery um, or just coming out of treatment. There, um, you know, there's linking people to healthcare providers. If you're a family member and you have a, a loved one who's just in early recovery, wow, you know, helping them man, uh, sort of navigate the healthcare system, which is impossible anyway, um, but helping them navigate the healthcare system so that they're starting to deal with their physical health challenges. Uh, that are inevitably there after however long they've been using substances. Um, and making sure you get a doctor or a healthcare provider who's uh, not gonna stigmatize the person you love. Uh, have a conversation like, look, this guy's been having a lot of problems. I really hope that you can help him without making feel worse about you know the fact that he's been drinking for 20 years, for example. Um, and then, uh, employment. And so one of the things that we do know about people in recovery across the spectrum of recovery, early recovery, middle of it, down the road, later recovery, employment is so incredibly important for two reasons. One is, of course, we all need income. You got to you know, have to have money to survive in our, in our culture. Um, and so working provides income for people to do some of the things they want to do, including supporting their families. But it also, work is also a place where many of us find meaning. And so without a without work, we're we're without that opportunity to feel like we're contributing. We are doing something interesting. Uh, maybe even we're doing something that we're passionate about. We're all lucky if we get to be passionate about our jobs. And so um, in that community, in that recovery-friendly community, there will be employment opportunities where employers are not stigmatizing, right? So they're careful about how they think and talk about addiction and recovery, but also where they're understanding that if a person has a, a record, felony record uh, that's drug related, uh, that that does not make that person unemployable. Uh, it means there needs to be a conversation at the time of hire, but that 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 is such a tremendous hurdle to employment and employers can be very um, alert to that and create opportunities that are meaningful for people that are in recovery. And the other thing that we know um, that supports people in recovery and that a recovery friendly community is going to have uh, is, so I'm going to say the word community, and I'm going to, it's probably going to feel overused in the next five minutes, but, uh, so there's the recovery community, which very often has, uh, there may be AA houses, uh, different types of support group meetings that people go to, uh, and there are these, uh, en entities called, uh, recovery community centers. Sometimes they're called recovery cafes. They're places where people in, in recovery go to have fellowship. And sometimes there are meetings there and sometimes there's, uh, you know, uh, job opportunities or job boards or what have you, but the primary function really is uh, a place where people go for fellowship and then can have access to resources that they need. So that's a recovery community center and that that's all within the recovery community. But beyond that, we know that people in recovery need 
community with a capital C kind of integrated in where people connect with them, where they rub shoulders with their neighbors, where they feel uh, they feel like a citizen, where they vote, um, you know, where they are um, engaged in whatever's going on around them. And that's a place where we as community members can be so valuable in welcoming people in, in recovery into, into the community, which oftentimes it's their own community. They might've had to leave for a while during their period of use, but they might come, they may be coming back. Uh, and we welcome them back and we give them that connection and that meaning that's so important. I'm glad you brought up community. That's what I was leaning to go next, but I feel like that is like a magical elixir, the power of community on so many levels just heals us it gives us that sense of belonging we can share our good and our bad and that is what's been lacking but it feels like that's something that always heals why do you think it has those powers what is it about having a, a positive supportive community of friends or recovery community that can really banish even the darkest of evils i once had a guy on who told me that when they came back from vietnam the young guys most of them were on heroin the ones who kicked it without a problem had a strong community and i was like wow and i feel like here we are again what do you think this is so um i'm glad you brought up the heroin uh vietnam sort of study which is one of the most eye-opening uh stories i think for people who when they think drug they when they think heroin they think addiction right the first time you try it you're going to be an addict and uh, first of all, we know that's not true, that many, 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 many people try heroin and never go on to continue using it or they use it recreationally and then they're done with it. But what happened in the Vietnam War was that people were in this horrible environment uh, away from home, uh, asked to do pretty horrendous things under pretty horrendous circumstances, and there was an availability of heroin and that helped them. And they come home and... Uh, the circumstances under which they were using. So now they're home, they're not away from home. They're not in this horrendous environment where they're being asked to do terrible things. And also heroin's not quite as easily available. They change their behavior. And for many of them, heroin is like in their past, it's no longer a problem. And interestingly, what they did find when they studied those folks is that the people who continued to use when they came home were people who had had a previous uh, problem with drugs or alcohol and who had a family history of it. And so that you know really supports what we know about this uh, genetic component or familial component. Um, so, so I'll put that aside, but I'm glad you brought that up. So I, I don't really know the, like I've never gotten way down into the weeds of uh, what's called positive psychology, but there's this whole study of humans and our, uh, our need and want to be happy. Like what happens when we're happy and what happens when we have connections with other humans. And um, the, one, of the, one of the pieces of research that supports the, the um, recovery community centers that I mentioned earlier, places where people go for fellowship is this positive psychology. People, uh, you know, get engaged with others. They have a positive experience. They feel good. They want it again. They want to do that again. And it's like this self-perpetuating, uh, like, I want more. Um, and that allows them to heal uh, from, you know, some of the things that have been going on in their lives. 
Um, but it's not just people in recovery, it's all of us. So I'll just share an example. And I know everybody who's listening has had this experience during COVID of, uh, you know, being isolated for days and days and days and days and days, turn into weeks, turn into months. And uh, the first time I was in a um, an in-person uh, setting, it was outdoors, but in an in-person setting with like six or seven people, honestly, it was, I was so happy. It was kind of like, I was like, hi, and we weren't doing anything. It was like a meeting. How exciting can a meeting be? But, but I realized at that time, the profound impact that isolation had on my physical well-being. And that's not even taking into account any underlying like depression or drug use or any of that other stuff. So um, I can't tell you like, what is it about community that's so important? But I think that it's built into who we are as humans. And I think we have pretty successfully created a society where uh, you you don't have to you don't have to have that community. You don't necessarily have you you aren't necessarily a part of the community, right? You, you, we still need it. We're still human, and we've built these uh, possibilities for people to live without it. Uh, and so people get alienated, people get in pain, and then turn down the wrong path. Boy, you nailed that, and I was just back in new england this summer and it was like after all the COVID, the two years and it just felt so wonderful to have dinner parties again and go and have coffee and hundreds of other things and meditate in a room it was like i had no idea how affected i had been i had adjusted and adapted as we do as organisms but it felt like a whole new world and it was the best summer ever we just need it it's essential we do, and I think one of the things that research is starting to delve into now is is the uh, is uh, research on gratitude. So what I heard in your voice when you're talking about how wonderful it was to have dinner parties was just like this gratitude for seeing your friends in a way that you were able to, in a way that's familiar and fun, and that I think is also part of um, part of our emotional makeup. It's again, I just. I don't know the research. I feel like it's built in. Like we need, we need that. And that fuels us and it fuels us to interact with other people in very positive ways. And I think gratitude also fuels us to, to be altruistic, to, to write books about recovery, for example, and, uh, and, you know, kind of help the other guy. Gratitude is the baseline for my existence. I, I have to give the mind a bone to chew on or else it'll get into trouble. <laughs> I just, before I go to bed and when I wake up, I, I ask it, find me what's right. Give me 20 blessings. And it sort of sets the trajectory and it'll go try to find all the good things that are happening that I'm lucky for. If I don't say anything, it'll try to find what's wrong as a, I think a subconscious survival tool. And then you get bummed out. So you just have to sort of point it and throw the stick in that direction. At least that's what I've done. I've had that experience as well. That um, that baseline is not <laughs> baseline is not gratitude. Baseline is kind of, eh, you know, sort of neither neither positive nor negative. But you know, when you do set your set your mind to understand what's going well in your world, in your life, uh, in your family, in your relationships, even if there's a lot of bad stuff going on, if you set your mind to what's going well, it really does change your outlook. Have you done any studies on meditation helping in recovery? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, and I thought that there would be a lot of studies um, on that. Uh, and the answer is there aren't many. And I think that's mostly because it's, it's new. Uh, so if you think about the history of recovery, uh, traditionally, uh, let's say over the last, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, traditionally, it's been through 12-step programs. Uh, it's been through residential treatment programs, which also focus on 12-step recovery. Uh, and it's also been the vast majority of people still now who get well, get well on their own. So no, uh, no treatment, no particular pathway, they figure it out on their own. And so, you know, mindfulness uh, and other types of meditation have been our, our newcomers to the game. Uh, I think that generally we know about mindfulness and in settling, settling the mind, but also addressing um, different aspects of what's going on in the body and um, what I've observed. So this isn't the research, but this is just anecdotally, you know, people who uh, people in recovery may be people who have been living with anxiety in the past, uh, they may be people who've lived with depression. Uh, they may, um, because of that anxiety, uh, they may have a, or maybe not because of the anxiety, they may also just have a real, um, they feel uncomfortable in their bodies. And I've heard that so many times from people, something just wasn't right. Uh, and so, uh, and so the drugs helped out with that, kind of took that away. But when they stopped taking drugs, something still doesn't feel right. And that act of meditating and um, sitting in silence, sitting with others in silence um, and being and having a guide, often having a meditational guide can help quiet uh, those anxious thoughts, can definitely help quiet what's going on in the body. And that feeling of just not feeling right what people have told me is they've sort of learned how, not how to manage it. They've learned that if they sit uh, in meditation, that it does go away. So I fully expect um, a, a round of, uh, of a research on meditation and recovery, certainly to be coming out. Well, this is fantastic. We're gonna have to back. I would love for you to maybe send out an inspirational message for anyone in recovery or dealing with someone in recovery, because it can be a lonely place and maybe they found us here today and maybe your kind and wise words could lift them up and give them a bit of hope, at least as they listen in this moment and we send our prayers and love to them. It's not easy being here, like I said earlier. Uh, anything you want to share with this beautiful worldwide audience would be appreciated. Well, thank you for that opportunity. I, I want to just say that you're not alone, no matter where you are or who you are. There are millions and millions of people who are uh, in your same circumstance uh, and who've got your back, who want the best for you in the same way that you want what's best for you and, and want your best life for you also. And I wanted to say that um, even in the darkest days, there is hope. Um, and to find someone that you can reach out to who will uh, support you in that, uh, in that journey towards hope. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. 
If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.